Well, it's good to see everybody. Uh, since I was last here last week, you may not know that, but I've been gone all week. And uh, it's uh, good especially to see you here today if you're new with us, if you're a guest with us. My name is Dwayne, Pastor Dwayne, but you can call me Dwayne. Uh, because we are an inviting church. It's in our DNA, and we're so uh, glad that you're here and hope that you've sensed God's presence or encouragement in some way. We hear that a lot around here, and it's not because we're so great, it's because of Him. So um, hope that's working for you. I have a couple of first off-the-top admissions to make. One is uh, I need to apologize for the white shirt, okay? Because I know that I should be handing out those sunglasses you get at the 3D movies, you know, because just these lights just blast. And especially if you're watching online, watch this. See that floating head over the top of my jeans, you know? Isn't that weird? Yeah, you can't tell, but online you can tell the head just kind of floats. I promise the legs won't go one way and the head won't go the other way. We're not that kind of church. But um, it, we, it, it just, it's just weird uh, because it makes it uh, look like that. And, and the admission is, I, I should have uh, thought this through, but um, my wife Sharon is not home yet. And the only shirt I had in the closet when I got home last night at 1030 was this one, okay, that was ironed and not all wrinkly. And you say, well, Dwayne, why don't you iron your shirts? Because it's not my way. I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I love my shirts, and I might, something might happen if I did that. So she's not here. So that's the deal. Uh, and, and that sort of relates to the other admission that I should have made, uh, and that is that I should have asked you all to pray for what was going on with me this week and where I was. I, because you see, I'm on the national board for our uh, family of churches, our denomination that, that meets, uh, we're a congregational church, so it meets once a year so that all the churches can send their delegates, and there were like a thousand of them this time, over a thousand, and, and uh, uh, so that we can make decisions and move forward with it as a church. And frankly, there was some stuff on uh, on the docket this year that was pretty freaky because you know how our world and our society is kind of, there's some major issues on the scene and some of that was coming on the floor. And uh, what I can tell you is, thank you for those of you who did pray, uh, you can pray retroactively and be a part of this, uh, but God did an amazing thing. We weren't hearing uh, everything from him, but uh, I, and I don't have time to get into detail. We got some great leadership. Uh, we have had, but it's going to continue uh, at, at all levels, uh, just some amazing things. But here's the beautiful, beautiful thing about the family of churches that you can thank God for and you can be proud of. Um, we're a part of a group of people who believe that it is possible to stay true to the Bible and uphold the Bible and be loving and compassionate and merciful and doing justice all at the same time. And And... Not a lot of people speak that out. Not a, lot of, you know, not a lot of groups do that. And I'm not comparing this to anybody else. I'm just saying you can be thankful that that's true. And God did a thing uh, this week. Uh, and it was just amazing to see the body of Christ come together and say, we're following him. So it's just amazing to me. But maybe I can share the details with you about that another time. Uh, but um, yeah, the reality is I, I, as we were starting this reading in the New Testament, love this book, you know, get your... Uh, Get your journal this week, even if you haven't been a part of us, join us uh, on this, but join us for the rest of the, the year as we read through this, especially through the summer. I hope today's message will kind of inspire some of that. It's not meant to manipulate you into that. It's just meant to say, hey, this, this kind of be, it might be kind of cool. Um, and, and we're starting this series called Gospel. And that's the, first, that's the name of the first four books of the Bible or, or, or the New Testament or the Gospels. Uh, it's, the, it's the story of Jesus. That's what it's called uh, and, and so forth. And, it, and what I want to talk about today is how God 
was putting all that together when nobody could hear from him. Because you see, the word gospel literally means good news. Like, news I didn't know before, and go, oh, that's good news. In fact, you can translate it joyous news. Good, that's why, you know, here's Christmas in the middle of the summertime. That's why when the angels show up to the shepherds, they say, I bring you good news of great joy. Because it's all encompassed into this word, gospel. It means this joyous thing. And let me tell you, when the first uh, waves of the gospel start to uh, come on shore of the New Testament, in that time, in that day, it really was joyous news. And here's why. As we left Nehemiah, Ezra, and Micah at the end of the Older Testament two weeks ago, remember things were going okay, but they were getting worse, and they went from bad to worse. Because by the time you get to the last prophet of the Old Testament, the, the last book of the Older Testament, uh, the book of Malachi, what you wind up with is God saying, I'm going to go silent for a while. I'm going to be silent. And it's represented right here in this little white page between, your, between Malachi and Matthew. 400 silent years. Now, that's not just some interesting thing that gets Bible geeks all excited. Can geeks get excited? I don't know. Anyway, if you are one, we love you. But, the, you know, Bible geeks like me. Is that possible to get excited? Yes, it is. But it, it, it portends something amazing, really, these 400 silent years. And that's what I want us to, to look at today. Because you and I have had silent moments, haven't we? When God seems to be silent, when he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, when he's a million miles away. I mean, what did God do during those 400 years? Did he get so sick of this sin-soaked world, he just took his ball and went home? And over a couple of hundred years, he started feeling better, and okay, I'll send Jesus. Is that how it happened? What, what was that all about? Like, where is God when he's silent? Have you ever felt that? I mean, here's the thing. If you can answer one of these four questions, even one of these four questions with a yes, you've been in those moments when you've had, four, when you've had a time of silence. But think about this. What if you had not just one day, one season, but you had 400 years of seasons of God's silence? But think about these questions. Has God ever been silent or seemed silent to you? Has it ever seemed like God took 400 years to answer your prayers? Yes. Have you ever felt like God answers other people's prayers and is silent to yours? Oh, that other pastor, he gets them all the time. Has God's silence ever caused you to wonder if there really is a God? You see, I think this isn't just some really cool, cheeky thing that relates to us. This is why we love this book, man. This is why we love it, because it's so practical and it's helpful. And what we're going to look at and explore today, I think every person has to go through before they become a Christian. This, the message of today really sets us up for experiencing and living in and sensing the joy and feeling the joy of the gospel. And it has to do with when God is silent. You see, we're going to go on a journey today. We're going to go on an adventure today where we're trying to answer two questions. The first one is this, what is God doing in the silence? And we'll spend a significant amount of time on that. But we got to ask, ask another question too that we don't often like asking. And that is this, what are we doing in the silence? You know, 
It's like when I first started this church, when I went to be a church planter, uh, the, the man who just uh, finished being president of our family of churches was uh, the church planting director at that time. And he told me, Dwayne, I can promise you two things when you plant the church. You're going you're gonna to be broken, and you're going to need at least two miracles to get this thing off the ground. <laughs> so being me, I said, um, can I be broken all at once right now and get one of my miracles? He said, no, that's up to God. And the reality is, is we look at that and we go, ah, can I just avoid the silence? And the reality is, is I hope by the end of this day you go, you know what? I don't want to avoid the silence. I want to experience God in the midst of that because there is a way, and it's right here in our Bibles. Let me give you a preview, sort of a premiere of the big idea today. Here it is. Never confuse God's silence with God's absence. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's theological reasons, there's practical reasons, there's important reasons for your life. But one of the most important practical reasons is, is when you think God is absent because he's silent, what happens is one of the first reactions for us as human beings is we think, well, if God's not going to do it, I need to take control of it. And we've seen this over and over again in the Older Testament, in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, in the life of Elijah and David. I mean, you name it. We see it through all these saints. We're going to see it in the New Testament, where when we take control, most often those wind up being the greatest times of regret in our lives later on. And the problem with that is that there, it's, it's, that, that silence is not meant for that because it's in those moments well, if we can trust God, that God uses, uh, uses those moments to grow us and prepare us for things we couldn't have dreamed of before. And that's, I think, the message that we're going to get when we start looking at these 400 silent years. But what you need to understand as we begin this New Testament study is that there's an event that happens 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene 400 years before, that sets the stage that is the foundation, 2,400 years ago, that's the foundation of what uh, the New Testament is about and what, what we're about to dive into and, and why it's important to us. And it has to do with that prophet Malachi, the, uh, the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, just before you get to Matthew, the white page and then Matthew. And Malachi wrote these prophecies that God spoke to him through. And remember, the people are in a growing mess, the people of God. Where are you, God? What are you up to? And, and Malachi has these five speeches where, you know, the people uh, sort of argue with God, and God keeps saying one thing over and over and over again, and then he kind of lays the foundation of what it, what's going to happen and what's coming up over the next four to 450 years. Here's, here's how that book starts off, and here's the message he keeps repeating over and over again in the book of Malachi. It's verse 2 of uh, chapter 1 of Malachi. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And I think for those of us who are in the midst of the silence, that's what he wants to hear us to hear first. And the reason I say that is because we look at that, we go, I know God loves me. I go, what's next? But you got to dive into what this really means. What this really means is God is saying with this word, okay, you're just going to have to trust me on this. This Hebrew word for I have loved you. It means all of these things. It means I have loved you, I do love you, and I'm going to love you for eternity. All of that is packed into this one word. We don't have a word like that, do we, for love? And, but that's what this means. I've loved you, I do love you, and I will love you on into the infinite future. I've loved you, and I will continue to love you into the future, and I love you right now in the midst of the silence. 
It's, it's a word that's powerful. It means, it means lover, lovable. It can mean to flirt. I don't necessarily think that's what God's meaning by this, but it can mean to be endearing. All the things that we think of are packed in, I love is, is packed into this word, but it's got consistency, past, present, and future. And in the midst of that, as in, in this, this is the first speech of, uh, of Malachi, uh, that God's speaking through him. As you come along through the book of Malachi and you get to the third speech, God reveals that this isn't just some random bunch of 400 years of silence. He's got a plan. And he's going to be doing something in the midst of this. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. I will send my messenger, who's that? That's the Messiah, who will prepare the way uh, before me. Another would prepare the way for my Messiah. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. In other words, I've got a plan. I'm laying this out. I'm not just here twiddling my thumbs. And, and what's interesting to me is, as it, as it says this, it says there's going to be one who comes who prepares the way for that promised one who you so desire to show up, who that one who is me, who is my person, my Messiah. And as we, as we roll past these 400 years, we, we begin to see, what is God doing in the silence? Well, I'm going to tell you some very specific things in a moment that God was doing in this particular silence, silence that relates to what he does in our lives when we feel like he's silent. But before we get there, I want you to see how he answers his own question 400 years later. And we're going to look at the oldest story that is recorded in the New Testament. And it's in the book of Luke. Luke is the one who right off the bat in the book of Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four gospels. Luke is the one who says, I have obsessed over getting these facts exactly as they happened. I'm not making any of this up. This is exactly, I've researched it, and I have been obsessive for years collecting this stuff, okay? And, and, and he starts off by saying that, but then he tells us a story that is the oldest story in the New Testament. It's, his book wasn't written first. It's not the oldest book. That would be Mark, and we'll talk about that later another time. And Mark, interestingly, was the one that had Peter as his friend speaking over his shoulder as he wrote it. Very interesting. So there's an eyewitness account there. It's not even the oldest document in the New Testament among the letters in the Gospels. That would be Galatians. Paul's first letter was written the earliest, earlier than the other things. And we'll talk about that as we get down the line here too. But the reality is, this is the oldest story in the New Testament. And you're going you're gonna to be reading it this week in Luke chapter 1. And, and I think your heart's going to kind of open up after what we talk about today for these two people. There, there are two people named uh, Zechariah and, uh, and Elizabeth. And these were faithful, faithful, dear people who even though they hadn't heard from God in 400 years, and some of the people were starting to say, that's a really neat promise that he's going to show up again, but I'm starting to fade in my hope. Not these guys. In fact, they had every reason to doubt God. Because, you know, every generation, every season of, the, uh, of history has its sort of own kind of uh, wrong ideas and even, you know, bigoted ideas and so forth. Well, in those days, they did something that, you know, we look at today and say, that's crazy. But they, they uh, said in those days that if you didn't have children, particularly if you, you never had children, you became old and there were no children, that somehow God was mad at you, that he didn't like you anymore. And that was the case for these guys. I mean, totally crazy idea, but 
But that was the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they were too old. They were past childbearing age. And yet they remained faithful to God. In fact, Zechariah was a priest. And Zechariah, on this particular year, uh, he had been, they, they, they would cast lots. They'd kind of roll the dice, so to speak, to find out which priest, because only one person could do it once a year, would go into the Holy Holies, offer prayers and sacrifices for the people in this inner sanctum, if you will, of the temple. And Zechariah was the one that was picked this particular year, even though, you know, he was childless and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so, so, so Zechariah gets picked, and he goes into this, uh, this Holy of Holies, into the temple, and what happened is they tied a, a rope around his foot as he walked in there because nobody else could go in there and get him, and if he dropped dead, you wanted a way to yank him out. But to make sure they didn't yank him out too soon while he's still standing, uh, they put little bells in the bottom of his robe so they could hear the dingling, you know, and the tinkling, right? So they knew he was still moving. Like, man, if I'm Zachariah, even if I stand still, I'm wiggling my leg. I'm just going to go because I don't want people yanking me out too soon. But Zechariah is in there, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord shows up, and a very particular angel. It's Gabriel, the messenger angel, same one that shows up to Mary and Joseph later. And Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, you in your old age, you and your wife are going to have a son. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe this. You can, you can see this later. And as a result, he doesn't get to speak for uh, nine months. But he got, the, the angel tells him this information that this is going to be the one who does exactly what Malachi said would happen that God prophesied through Malachi that there would be one that prepares the way for the Messiah. And it turns out to be this one's cousin. And, and, and in fact, look what Gabriel says specifically in Luke chapter 1. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn their hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what this is prophesying, of course, is John the baptizer. The reason I say that is because he wasn't necessarily a Baptist or covenant or Presbyterian or whatever he was. He was a baptizer. He was the one that was, he was the John the preparer, if you will, the cousin of Jesus. But what's interesting is, is there's a couple, of, there's a word in here that, that shows up in, in all these verses, and bring back and in turn and to prepare the way for the Lord. It's a word that we have translated differently across the rest of the New Testament, but it means to turn around, it means to prepare, it means to fix the way so people can get through. It means all of that, but it's the word that's most often translated repentance. Turn around, change your mind, go a new way. But what's interesting about that, the cognate word in the Hebrew language in Malachi's time, okay, the cognate, we say cognate because that, that just means the word that in one language is related to another language. That word shows up in the book of Malachi, the word for turn around, repent, change your way, change the way, clear the way. And you know where it shows up? It shows up in Malachi 3.7 when it says this, the Lord promises, you will return to me and I will return to you with a bang. Okay, I added the bang, but that's kind of what God's saying. I will, I will show up and bam, it will happen. Now that starts to answer our first question. Where is God when he seems silent? He's, he's doing stuff. He's preparing the way already. 
But you might say, well, in my life, how am I supposed to connect with that? What does that mean? And, you know, what, what exactly? Well, the reality is I don't know what's going on in your life anymore than you know what's going on in my life that I'm waiting for on God to speak into, right? And I honestly do not have a specific Bible verse for you today. I'm gonna look, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture, several Scriptures over, over the course of this thing. But I don't have a Bible verse to tell you exactly what God's doing in your silence. But what I do have is recorded history of what God was doing in this 400-year silence. And if we can get a handle on that and begin to understand on that, just three events, we could pick many, but three events, if we can, if we can pick up on this, we're going to understand a little bit more about what God might be doing in the moments of our silence. We're going to understand the gospel better. We're going to understand the New Testament better and whoa-dee-do what it means to our lives and how helpful this can really be. And you might say to you, say, well, that's great, recorded history. I flunked history, didn't like history, never had history, whatever. But, you know, or, or you may say, you know, my college professor used recorded history to com- basically completely destroy everybody's faith. But I, I'll just say two things about that college professor. One is if you could catch up with her or him today, you might find that there's a different story. Because I hear that all the time, that your professor has changed their mind. But the second thing I would say is this. These three things I want to talk to you about, your professor, even even if they're still a a blazing atheist, would say, no, no, I agree with those things. Those things actually happened. Those three things. And what's amazing is we begin to see in these three things that God was at work in the midst of this 400-year silence that made it possible for you and I to follow Jesus right now today and to be in this worship service and to be in this place just like thousands, millions of people across the planet right now. Let me just show you what I mean. At the end of the Old Testament, two weeks ago, we left Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi. We left them in the Persian Empire, remember? Babylon was the big dog on the scene, and then from the east, the Persians came and took over, just completely wiped them out, took over their whole um, country, their whole nation, their whole empire, and then they became the biggest empire ever in, on the history of the planet. So that's where it is at, at 400 years uh, before Christ shows up on the scene. Well, here's, here's what happens very shortly into that 400 years. About 360 uh, B.C., a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon shows up. And you say, never heard of him. I was asleep during that lecture. That's okay. Because Philip of Macedon was the, like the father of the Greeks. He was, he was from the northern part of Greece. So he's over in the west. And he starts sweeping over toward the east, toward the Persian Empire. But then he dies. And you may have never heard of him. But I'll bet you you've heard of his son because he's even been in the movies. It's Alexander the Great. Remember him? Alexander the Great was this young guy who did amazing things, militarily at least. Even to this day, you can find military strategists. I, I've heard them you know, on the news or whatever who will, use, who will drop his name as the greatest, most brilliant military strategist in the history of the world. Because this guy goes from Greece all the way over to conquering Persia, and he's only 33 years old. And he comes to the end of that at 33 years old, and he goes, I'm depressed because there's nothing else to conquer. And then he dies. But before he dies, he makes a declaration. He makes an edict. He says, my empire is so vast, and there are so many different people, and so many languages being spoken. 
I want to have a language that everybody can understand what I'm saying when I say it because I am the great master of my empire. Then he dies. But not before his, his philosophers, his philologists, his linguistics experts form a language based on the Greek language that can be used everywhere and everywhere. It becomes the trade language for the next several, many, many hundreds of years. And his name, I mean, the, the name of this language is Koine Greek. You say, woo, whoop-de-doo, that's pretty neat, Wayne. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's neat because it's the vernacular language of the ancient Near East. It's the, it's the basic language, not this highfalutin Greek it's, it's the kind of language that you're talking to me, forget about it. That kind of language that every dock worker and every academic could understand. And here's the thing. This decision, whether he knew it, which he didn't know, this decision, unbeknownst to Alexander the Great, is in large measure why you've heard the story of the gospel. It's why you've got a Bible sitting in your lap today. I hope you do. It's the reason why you and I have heard the name Jesus. Just maybe when Alexander the Great made that decision, it proved that what the Bible said is true, that God will even leverage kings who have no interest in him, who have no belief in him. He'll even leverage that to get his message of love and forgiveness and grace to you and to me. Because that's the language your New Testament was written in. But the, I'll get back into that in a minute. But I, there's two more events during this 400 years I need to kind of get a hold, hold of here. And the second one was the Pax Romana. That's Latin for the Roman peace. The Pax Romana was basically something that the world had never seen before. It was relative calm across the, the Roman Empire. You see, the Greeks lasted for a few couple hundred years, but then about 150, 200 years, Rome rises up, conquers it all, and then they're the biggest empire the world has ever seen. But what's unique about it is it's across the empire, it's relatively calm. You know, you don't, you don't have these revolutions and uprising because the Rome is so powerful and so strong, they just smash them and put them down. In fact, we can see this in the New Testament. Again, the, the Easter story, when, when, uh, when Pilate, you know, has Jesus brought before him and he doesn't really want to crucify him, but he wants these guys to quit screaming and making such a fuss, and he actually wrings his hands and washes his hands and says, that. I don't want anything to do with you. And remember his wife said, be very careful what you do with it. You shouldn't crucify him. But he does it. He, he, instead, he, he dumps it on them and says, you do it. Uh, it's your fault. It's on your head. Why is he such a fraidy cat about this? Because here's why. He, he's the governor at the long end of a string of governors who have had so much turmoil in the Judean Palestine province of Rome that Caesar has sent governor after governor to say, put those people in their place. I don't care if you have to put your boot on their neck. Just do whatever you got to do to get them to calm down because we're not going to have any. That's the kind of peace this was. And that's, that's you know, relative calm. But here's the good news about that. It made it possible for people to travel freely and for, for things to, you know, trade to happen and all kinds of things like that and people to get on boats like the Apostle Paul did and go to all these places around the empire. And that relates to the third thing that happened. Beginning about 150 B.C. and going up to 50 A.D., which, interestingly enough, that's right about when the first documents of the New Testament were written, 50 A.D. But there was this thing that came on the scene that the world had never seen before called the Vie Publicae. 
which is roads public. Public road system. And there were 50,000 miles of roads built. The world had never seen this in the Roman Empire. In fact, you can still see them today. If you go to Rome and you look at that, you know, that place where they've excavated things and you've got the Appian Way and the, all the marbled uh, uh, pillars and stuff along the side of it. That's part of the road, the, the road system. But you can go to Italy or into Europe or as far as Israel or into Persia. You can go even up to um, England now and, and, and uh, Ireland. And you, you can go to Scotland and you can see some of the stones and some of the pathways of these roads that were built, 50,000 miles of them. That's a big deal because how are you going to get the gospel story out? How, where you, how is it going to get away? Well, you need some peace, you need some road, and you need a, a language. And so at the end of, or at, the, at, at the, the beginning of the New Testament, you've got three things that are going to help the gospel get going, and they all happen during that 400 years. You've got a common language, you've got a Roman world peace, and you have a transportation system to spread it around, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul used masterfully, didn't he? Took it all the way to Rome, and this is not in your Bible, but we have documents to indicate, we have information, some legends that indicate he went, he got out of jail and went all the way to Spain. He covered the empire on this road system, and his letters even went farther than that because of this peace and this language and this system of them. All the way through. But here's the crazy, crazy thing. All of that was not logistically possible 400 years before when the Old Testament is done and God goes silent. It was only logistically possible 400 years later. It's almost like somebody had it planned. Isn't that interesting? And what does that mean for us? I think what it means is, is like if you've ever been in a play or if you've ever been to like Broadway, I remember, I've only been there one time, but we went to see Phantom of the Opera years ago and uh, at, uh, at intermission, we went and got our popcorn or drinks, whatever we got, and we came back to our seat and I could see this bright line underneath the curtain as the curtain comes down, it had come down before intermission. And in that light, I saw all these little shadows going back and forth, like people were walking around and things were moving back there. And every once in a while, I don't think they're supposed to do this, but somebody would bump the curtain and it would, you know, back and forth. They were preparing for the next act. And I think that's what God was doing in these 400 years. And that's an indication that that's what he's doing when he's silent in your life. The curtain does sometimes come down and it seems silent. And as the curtain comes down at the end of the Older Testament, that's exactly what God is up to. And he begins to move the pieces around to say, okay, at the right time, now. Everything is set for my gospel story, my good news to get out to you and to me across the planet all these hundreds, thousands of years later, 2,400 years later. Now, what we do have in the Bible are eyewitness accounts that this was true, that this is what had happened. For example, we have a very, very wise, uh, wonderful woman who teaches us a lot because her, her husband just couldn't believe that God would do this miracle for them after 400 years of silence. But she did because she experienced it. And when Elizabeth, his wife, becomes pregnant, 
this dear older saint, here's what she says about what God must be up to. The Lord has done this for me, she said, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What does that mean? That means, I think, that now, even after we thought that God wasn't doing anything, I realized that God has been present with me all along. I just didn't see it before. Now I see it. And, and a couple decades later, when the Apostle Paul has, in, in writing his first letter, that winds up in our New Testament, the first document in there, in the book of Galatians, it comes time for him to describe the gospel story and how Jesus came to earth, and instead of talking about Bethlehem and the angels and the wise men and all that kind of stuff, here's what he says about how it worked. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the set time had fully come, was Paul thinking about the reality that it was not logistically possible for God to do what he wanted to do fully at the end of the Old Testament, but 400 years later it was? I think maybe he was, because remember his feet were the feet that were tramping on that Roman road and riding that Koine Greek and, and spreading the gospel through a relatively peaceful world that, could, that he could get it out. You see, I think what this means for you and for me in answering our first question of where is God in the silence is that he hasn't gone anywhere. That at one point, at some point, and I don't know what your situation is. You don't know what my situation is. I don't know what exactly it is you need to God to do for you, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. But what I do need to know is this, is that God can be trusted and I also know that one day the curtain will rise, and when it does, you'll be perfectly positioned for God's purpose and his mission and what he's got for you in your, your life, and it'll be beyond what you can imagine, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. That is, I think, what we're supposed to understand from the white page between Malachi and Matthew. That God is really is up to something. So, so what are we supposed to do about it? Well, here's what I think we need to do about it. When you hear God's silence and feel his absence, trust or lean into, trust his presence. It's not a sin to feel like God's silent or to start to feel like he's absent. But all he's asking you to do is trust with your heart and your mind, you've said, God, that you are not absent. You're present. Why? How did he promise that? He promised that in the name of his son that came to earth, Emmanuel. God is with us. And that's the whole story of the gospel right there. And if you can trust that, you can trust the fact that, you know what, God, uh, the, the, the events of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and then ascending into heaven, they're true. They actually happen. And if you can trust that, it's a short, reasonable jump, or short, reasonable walk, if you will, over to the other thing that Jesus said at the end of his life before he ascended into heaven, his earthly life. He said, I'm coming back. You can trust that. That's basically the whole story of the Bible right there. Certainly the whole story of the New Testament. And so what are we to do with all this information? Well, I can just tell you from my experience for, for one thing, if you're feeling that God is, is silent, if we're really going to trust his presence, 
and you're wondering what you should do today or tomorrow or the next day, here's, here's an idea. Figure out what somebody would do if they absolutely got, believed God was present with them in your circumstance, and then go do that tomorrow. I think that's what this is teaching us. God, I don't see it. I don't see any numbers. But if I really believe that you're here, this is the direction I'm going to go. So you go that way. Another thing to think about is, you know, what I've discovered is, is when I have days like that, where I'm, I'm wondering, God, where are you? You could sure hear it from you. Don't have a Bible verse today. Or blah, 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 you know, whatever it is. I, if, you, if you live into his presence, if you, if you trust in his presence, even when you don't feel it, invariably God shows up in some way. It may not be the way you're praying for, but in some way he shows up. You go, oh, <laughs> that's what this is. I already told you how that happened to me this week. I also told you that when I was on a, a trip with my family in England and then I wound up going to Israel like this, I got sick in my favorite city in England. That's another story. We'll leave it at that. But I got the most massive, and I'm not going to give you the details, most massive food poisoning I've ever had. It lasted four days. And every night I would pray, God, help me be better so I can get up and go with my family in these places, and i got to get on some planes soon. And every morning I'd wake up, oh, I feel worse. You know, my medical... Uh, specialist wife, you know, she's, she's a medical professional. She's so great. It's great to be married to one when you're sick, except when she says, you know what? You might have a parasite. And I felt even worse, you know. And um, I'm praying, God, this does not make sense to me. This is not make sense to me. Right in the middle of that, I was somehow able to focus enough on the screen of my phone or my iPad and read uh, an article. And it wasn't even a Christian magazine. It was, you know, it was, I think it was on Google News. I don't remember where. But I found an article that tells us that they've released a new set of manuscripts of the New Testament that were just found in 2015. And now they've kind of looked at them, they've authenticated them, and they just released them. And they found one that is the oldest manuscript of the Gospels, of any of the Gospels that, we've, that we have found to date. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't change your life? Oh, here, let me think about this. Here, here it is on the screen. That's what it looks like. That's a piece of the book of Mark. And it's an exact rendering of the, of the Greek language that was... That, that was used to translate the Bible in your lap. And guess what it's written in? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Koine Greek. You know what that says? That says God was up to something in that silence. But what's interesting also is that this thing is the oldest manuscript we've got. They date it from 100 to 125 A.D., now, here's the significance of that. Mark was probably written in the early 50s A.D. So 50 to 60 years later is all. Now, if you're a millennial, you're going, man, that's a long time. But if you can remember Martin Luther King and the Beatles and the Vietnam War and all that, it ain't nothing. And believe me, millennials, the older you get, the less that'll seem like a big deal. That's not very long at all, is it? And yet it's an exact copy of what we have in our laps. It's a message that when I read it, it was like, look, I got this. I can't tell you exactly why this is happening for you. My ways are higher than your ways. But you know what? 
I'm at work right now because, look, I got this message to you all those thousands of years later. I got this. You don't think I can handle a little food poisoning? You see, I think that's what God's saying to us in the silence. I have this. And he's saying, when you hear God's silence and feel his absence, trust his presence. That's what this is saying. You know, little did Alexander know that all these, you know, that hundreds of years later that God would use his decree to make this possible for you and I to be sitting here this morning thousands of years later. And yet that's exactly what God did. And could it be that that's what God's up to in the silence? And all he asks from us is this. Again, to say it one more time, when you hear God's silence and feel his absence, instead of going that way, go the other way. Trust in his presence. I'm going to call a band out here. And as they do, I want to just tell you one more thing. And that is because I so desperately want you, my friends, the people I love, get back with the, re- the people I'm willing to get on a midnight flight back to because I miss you. To tell you, not because I'm trying to manipulate and get into you, uh, this, into, but because I really think this could be a, one of the greatest things in your life. Let's read Love This Book together. And the, let's read the New Testament together in, in the Love This Book series. Get the, download the app or get the, the, the journal today or, or get the, the, the reading sheet if you like the real tactile paper. I get that, like that sometimes, kind of tired of the screen. But let's read through this with that sense, with this understanding that God prepared all of this for, at, and at just the right time it happened. And at just the right time, he has the ability to bring up what we're reading in the New Testament into our lives exactly when we need it and what we need. And there might be go for days reading this. Well, I got my plan done. And all of a sudden on the fifth day, that's what I needed to hear. And I, I'm believing that we're going to have those experiences. And I'd love to have you experience that with us. That's all. So I encourage you to do that, to be a part of that, because here's the reality. God literally moved heaven and earth to get this message that he is a God of grace, that he is a God of forgiveness, that he is a God of love, and that Jesus is his Savior for you and for me. He did all that by moving heaven and earth for you and for me, and the story has come down to us in a really miraculous, amazing way where all the pieces were perfectly set, and the table was perfectly set for us to receive it. Let me pray for us as we read through the New Testament and go on into our summer and do all the stuff we're doing, but staying connected through this experience of the New Testament. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help us experience the gospel in these days, the good news, that we'd experience you, that you really are at work and you really are planning that you really are laying the foundation for what you want to happen in our lives next. And it is good stuff. And when the curtain goes up, we're going to be ready to see in a more powerful way than we ever have before that you've got a purpose for our life and that your mission in this world is to give us the message of grace and forgiveness and the message of Jesus. And Lord, it... uh, It sounds small when we say it, when we realize these big, huge things that you've done to show us your love. But it's the best word we got, and we know that you're pleased by it. We know that it touches your heart, too. When we say back to you, Jesus, that we love you. We thank you and love you for being here, for coming here, 
and for being here right now and giving us your word and working in ways that we can't always see. But from here on out, even when we don't feel it, we're going to trust your presence. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and that's why it's in your name we pray. Amen.